Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. This is Connecting Dots. Thank you for joining. This will be the first of a two-part deep dive. Now, make sure to read the disclaimer in our show notes before each episode. And due to our extensive holdings and that of our clients, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and thus a conflict of interest should be assumed. So like I said, this will be the first of a two-part series, and what you're going to hear is basically the following. We are going to discuss China, and we are going to give you an example of what we do on our client-only podcasts. Again, when you're a client of our firm, this is what you get on a real, real regular basis. Our insight, our connecting dots from a higher level. So what we like to do is kind of put these out every once in a while on the public side for connecting dots. So you kind of get an idea of really what it is that we do and we talk about here in our office. With that, what do you say we get started with today's show? One of the things we do on a pretty regular basis is we have a conversation about what's going on with China. China's a pretty big operation. China is making a lot of news. China's been in the news since Nixon opened the door with ping pong diplomacy going back to 1972. Let's talk a little bit about housing in China and what's really going on. What's the brief? Well, over the past, I don't know, probably 10 years, we've all seen articles and stories about just the rapid fantastical growth in, in housing in China. And then I guess probably about six years ago, we started hearing about these things called ghost cities or basically just, you know, cities with practically nobody living in them, but being built to modern kind of Western standards in the middle of places that are basically nowheresville. You know, Quite literally, they have some in Mongolia. Or, or up by the Mongolian border, yeah. yeah. And the question is always what, what, what the deal is with that. It's been an opaque to say the least and at least from my research and something i kind of came across it kind of comes to chinese cultural perspective um something that kind of gives you a lot of insight as to why these things even exist is from a chinese perspective they buy these properties a company comes in builds a builds a city and then they're targeted the sale is targeted at investors so it's a pure speculative speculative city for all practical purposes they build a city and everybody that buys it is, is an investor so one of the things everyone really needs to understand is we have in the orlando area disney and that whole thing called celebration we have in Tampa, we have Harbor Island, and in Tampa, we have Midtown that's going in. But we just don't have the kind of developments. Closest thing would be the villages, but we don't have anything remotely of the grand scale that they have continuously in these quote-unquote ghost towns. And then I have something to add to that. Go ahead. No, I mean, imagine going like, I don't know, 60 miles outside of St. Louis and putting up a city that would house a million people. And then no, almost nobody lives there. You have maybe 40,000 people that are mostly for maintenance and, and police and stuff. And, you know, just before we went into studio, I did a quick survey of the articles online in Google using standard term searches. And quite literally, 50% will say that these ghost towns are going to destroy China. And the other 50% say that that's not the story. There's really, they're, they're all occupied, they're all bought and sold, but they don't articulate what I know you're going to tell us. 
Yeah, so the the real on-the-ground situation is actually a lot more strange from a Western perspective, just because China is a black box. Most people don't understand China. Even people that should, it scares them. A perfect example is Jamie Dimon went to China on this grand tour earlier this year or late last year or something basically came back with the with the uh the fear of of the chinese syndrome that they're gonna they're gonna clobber us and take us over and we're all gonna die not literally but that was basically his takeaway yeah jamie diamond is but it's, old school play-doh when used to have cartoons on sunday and used to take uh the silly putty and you know you put it on the cartoon and oh look ink was on the play-doh this guy is not i cannot believe he's still the leader of that company but it's interesting because you know american banking executives are just beneficiaries of nepotism and government basically allowing oligopolies to, to run the roost absolutely and the same thing happens in china they just don't understand it they understand the american political system the political system in china is like i said it's a black box i mean people kind of get it but most people do not and even when you think you understand it it just becomes like the next the next level on the movie uh inception it just it becomes more complicated and there's even more to understand and a lot of that just has to do with the strange evolution from from uh from maoism um but the interesting thing with these with these ghost cities is they're 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 primarily an investment vehicle. So the average purchaser of of one of these of these properties, you know, whether it's a condo or you're investing in like a shopping center in one of these towns or something, you're buying them for the purposes of being an investment. But most of these people are buying it with cash, and because they're buying it with cash, they own the property outright. And if you have you know housing or, or property. Um, uh, valuations increasing by a couple percent a year, five, ten percent a year, or something like that. I don't, I don't, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Why would you rent it out when it's just going to cost you money to repair, to resell at a later time, to to recoup your investment? So just leave them empty. Who cares? Well, we, you know, you know, to, if you, I think it's important that we say, you know, for example, we have the, we have the little ranch. We did the same thing. Yeah, and we've done that. Well, technically, right now, I have what three or four properties that we could be making a whole lot more money on. But the appreciation is not worth. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's just at that break-even point where. Yeah, it depends on how you do the. Because I don't have the time. I don't. I'd have. We have to hire at least one other person to handle it, and it's just not worth it. So I kind of get that, but it's weird. But if you're, but this, but see, housing valuations or property valuations, you know, from an investment perspective in the U.S. are not increasing six, eight, ten, twelve percent per year. Exactly. They are in China though until the past year or so. So you have this interesting situation going on where people thought that these things, these things were being built on spec and these things were being built on pure credit that slowed down of course, but that didn't mean they didn't sell them. They did. They sold a lot of it. And so that kind of gives you an interesting, you know, insight into this. Um, something I was seeing is, is the China's third, I believe, largest company was a, was a developer of a lot of these types of cities and they were just deemed by the Chinese government as too big to fail. So they have something like $180 billion on their books, tremendous amount of debt that, at, you know, even at China's scale, which makes us look like, you know, looks like a, looks like a toy game by comparison, just the number of people and the complexity of everything. But, you know, their economy is still roughly, let's just say it's near parity, $180 billion in debt defaulting from 
that that would take out any any Western economy easily. Just the whole banking system would fail. And um, this is also the same company that's investing billion tens of billions of dollars into uh, electric car manufacturing, which which is very interesting. I think your your insight on that is absolutely phenomenal. Before we go there, one of the things I want to just throw out is that before we leave the discussion and go into the electric car area. One of the things I want to talk about is housing from a 20 and 25 year perspective. Now, generally speaking, a house, apartment, a condo, a high rise, they don't deteriorate to the point where they're useless after after 25 or 30 years if they're well built. No, of course not. And if they haven't been lived in, they're still new, but they're not worn. Now, granted, tastes change, technology changes, but depending upon the construction, which I have no earthly idea what they're doing there. Yeah, that's that's a huge risk. Here's my here's my point. I'm China. I've got a big population, and if size matters, and I want to take over more land, I need more people. And to get more people, either I have to make them in a test tube, or I need people to make whoopie do and start breeding. And if you have a society that you can control the population like Mao did, and now you say we want babies. And you're prepared, unlike the United States or everybody else, it's always playing catch-up. Just like when I was a kid, all the kids going to, they're building schools nonstop. And they started closing schools. Same thing with prisons. Years ago, they started closing prisons. Oh, not going to have the crime. And all of a sudden, the crime went nuts. That's what happened in Wisconsin. They closed several major prisons and they went, oops, we got a problem now. Now we got to start building prisons. So my point being, is there a long-term plan that's even grander and deeper not sinister, but more globalist because China's a big player. And if they're going to take on anybody, they need people. And a good adversary for them has always been the Indians. And they would kind of like to expand and take over, you know, a lot of other Pacific Rim areas. At least they're making that movement. And we both have talked extensively about the things they're doing in Africa. So just kind of put that in the mix a little bit. What do you think before we move on to the electric car thing? Well, I, I can't quite remember the terminology. Just, again, it's, you know, Western influence rubbing off on not understanding places that aren't us. But you, you they do plan, they, they do believe in this kind of thousand-year cycle in China. And that's really what they plan for is, is there are you know, not long-term, but, you know, extremely long-term planning. Multi-generational. Yeah, but it's... Way beyond A thousand that. years is beyond multi-generational. That's, that's, that's totally... That's a different league. But, it, but it's interesting because they do not... They do not, I believe, have a coherent plan for these facilities, these towns. I don't, I don't think it's part of it. I think what it is is it's a strange outgrowth of implementing capitalism and capitalist tendencies to their affluent 400 million because people don't really understand they think of china they're you know everybody has an image of modern china right but modern china down to you know the, the lowest level of, of of what you think is modern china to the heights of you know captains of industry that's just the top 400 million people in china most people forget that there are 600 million peasants still in china and these people are coming into the cities every day of in every hour of every day of every year looking for jobs there are more people outside of the major cities than there are in them and all of those people will at some point need to be integrated into a modern society yeah if you really want to pay attention do some research about the agrarian to industrialized uh, 
time frame of the United States. I mean, it has, has happened in every civilized nation. It's happening even in places like uh, Nigeria. Um, they're coming out of the woodwork and they're coming into the cities. I mean, my God, have you, some of the major cities in Nigeria, just they're huge. But imagine that you're only 40% into that. Yeah, it's a big that's, deal. That's very scary for the Chinese government. Um, you know, just some off the top of the head statistics that I, I read in the past week is China has something like a thousand pro, like major protests or riots every year that they have to put down. They have something like, I, I from my quick Wikipedia look, according to their stats, what, however accurate they are, they have something like 400 cities that have over a million people in them. Yeah, That's and, and when, when people are idle or underemployed, you have restlessness, you have problems. I mean, the French learned that years ago when Napoleon took over and said, okay, I'm in charge and we're going to get, we're done. I mean, it, the same thing with in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, the oligarchs came in, nothing more than a bunch of guys said, okay, I'm in charge, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, I mean, well, it literally, he who has the intestinal fortitude to stand up and do it will do it. You cannot have idleness here in the United States. Everybody's working who wants to work. And now people get, well, fat, dumb, and sassy with such a short time horizon. Instead of being appreciative, they, you know, start complaining about things that really are. Well, the workforce participation rate in the United States, despite record employment, is it's that that number is just a spook. It it doesn't make any, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, you might as well just throw out fake numbers because the only thing that matters is the workforce participation rate. And that has been unchanged for like 40 years. It's like 60%. That means nothing. Um, yeah, I mean the same. The, yeah, I mean you, you have idle hands, and that becomes a problem. And that is, uh, from what I've read, the biggest fear of the Chinese government is what happens when um, you, you can't create the jobs, and they don't really worry about the peasants as much as as much as the as the the westernized. I would say the the, the city dwelling, you know, upper class. Um, 400 million people because just to employ those people's children and those people that are coming out of school and everything every year, they have to create something like 25 million jobs every year just to keep just a mind just to keep their upper crest people happy. And And these are the people that when they lose it, they will get very angry. Yeah, they do have a tendency to get, and and it's not a, it's not a negative thing. It's just, just from an economics perspective. They're they're no different than anybody else. Yeah. But, but these people, the thing you have to remember is, you know, Americans, you can, you could, most Americans wouldn't riot if their life depended on it. No. As long as the TV keeps going and they have food in their, they have food in their fridge. They're and fine. now we have legalized pot in most places. So, you know. Well, but it's not just that. I mean, high, it's just, happy, drunk. Yeah. As long as, as long as the, as long as the, you know, the idiot box keeps running yep. and the food, the food and water supply keeps working, then most Americans are going to be fine. You know, the same thing goes with Europe. Same thing goes with, with most places on earth, but you have a group of people that, you know, it's not just a group, one of the world's largest populations, a huge portion of them, their parents or grandparents were peasants. Now they're living in, you know, Western style luxury. Maybe they're not per capita as wealthy, but you know, many of them are, you know, they own automobiles, a condo, they're working, you know, doing PowerPoint at, you know, a factory or company that's making software or something, you know, no different than anything in the United States. And then your son can't get a job and, you know, the economy's not doing so well. I mean, you can see it just deteriorating out of right. control well, really quickly. It, it, China is but, a lot. But, my, go ahead. But you remember the stories of your grandparents, you know, getting really angry and rioting or, or you know, fighting for or against the Maoist government or whatever. Like, 
that was one generation ago. You, you actually, maybe you even, you know, maybe those, that was your parents. Like this isn't separated by that much time. Whereas, you know, in the United States, everybody, you know, is worried about this type of thing just because, you know, everybody likes to worry about things. But, you know, the, the reality is the, the last major thing that happened in the U.S. was the civil rights era. And even then, that was a small blip compared to things like, you know, a civil war or or some major social calamity that, that really would engulf, you know, 10% or more of the population. In China, 10% of the population... That's a hundred million people. Americans just can't even fathom the scale that the, the country operates on, and because of that, I think it, it offers, it adds a lot of interesting complexity into, into this entire issue. It's just it's it's a totally different world, and it's it's I think it's very important for people to not make rash judgments and believe everything they read in the media because there actually is. You can't run a society like that without without very smart people, and they their people are operating at at the same level, if not higher level, than our people right now, as far as you know, governmental management and societal management. Well, one of the things I think that China has over what we have right now is that the Chinese are a lot like the Japanese were when I was a young guy, a young kid. I mean, the Ch- Japanese were they identified with their job, their value, their meaning in life was centered around work. And this whole concept, which is not necessarily true, especially today, but you had a job for life. You were expected to stay with a company. You rose to the rank that you know you were entitled to, or you earned. And but the the you just didn't have this lack of loyalty that you have here in the United States to employment. You didn't have the job switching. I mean, you did what you did. You so I think in China, and I've seen a couple documentaries where. To me, it was real clear. If you don't work, it's just it's very shameful. You're it, it's an issue. It's not a a socialist society in which what are you going to do for me from the government? It's a di- different. It's a different mindset. So that I see as yeah, I can I can see where that explodes. Hey, you know, I'm not writing because I want more dibs. I'm writing because I want to work. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is, you know, in general, in, in Asia, you have a six day work week. That's the same in China. You know, they take Sunday off, but generally speaking, it's it's a six day work week for most employees. Um, they all work longer hours. I mean, you can read about Japan's insane people in in the Western world called Japan. You know, their the way they kind of idolize work is just insanity. But the reality is. You know, if you, you have you have neighborhoods in Japan where it, w- there's an interesting social situation where if you're the first person in the neighborhood to come home from work, it's it's a it's a source of shame, not not a source of pride. So you know, in Japan, if you work an 18 hour day, that's a source of pride. You work six days a week, that's a source of pride. Um, you know, you you go out for dinner, you go out with work pals, and then you go back to the office for a few hours. That same type of thing. I don't know how extreme it is by comparison. I don't know, you know, what the uh, what the deal is, but there's still a level, an element of that in that society versus, you know, we think of the Western world where it's a lot more relaxed. But you know, the, the United States is still like that compared to I don't know a place like France or or other places in Europe where the focus on on your on your work is is important, but it's not a it's not the end all be all. Well, it's kind you know, of an interesting thing. It's like a real internalization of, of of extreme capitalism, I would call it. You know, extremes are always bad. You got to have a balance, and that's one of the things that we talk all the time on connecting dots, which is what we're doing here today. Is these are the things that are not being reported in the news. There is no legitimate news source. When I say legitimate, I'm talking about the alphabet soups out there that are actually reporting on this. What you have to do is really look 
and you really do have to look on you have to look for the the incongruity so you have to look what does this extremist say what does that extremist say and you have to figure out from what they're saying where the slivers of truth are and put it together because there's very few people that are connecting the dots by literally looking at everything if you look at them i call it the lame l-a-m-e lamestream news, which is mainstream, which I don't know if there's really going to be a mainstream ever in the future going forward, but you know, your ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS, all of those, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, I consider those all lamestream, uh, lame mainstream. Just the narrative generating companies. They, yeah, they're all parroting one another. It's like they, they all get the talking points. And yeah. just, I'd like to know who the wizard is behind the curtain at the Wizard of Oz. Uh, it's you know, a combination the yellow- of private industry and, and the government. Yeah, just- I mean, literally, I, I, I've, you've, you've said this, we've talked about this a lot, where you know, the talking points of the day, they do these things on the news show every once in a while. The Democrats tend to be so bad at it because they use the exact same words all the time. Uh, Republicans are no better. No. But, uh, I mean, literally, it's the same side, of the, different side of the same coin. But, you know, you you just literally sit back and go, there's there's some truth in this, but it's not the, the gobbledygook you're saying. And that's one thing that I really hope people that are, you know, for those of you who are listening, you know, we put we put a lot of time into this thing. I mean, I mean, it, it, we put a lot of time into. It. I mean, we're, it's what eleven o'clock at night, and we're still working. I guess we're doing the Chinese Japanese thing, aren't we? And um, but we do what we like, good, profitable, and can't control. But figuring out the truth in the quantitative is is bad enough. When you throw the qualitative analysis in there, it's horrible. <laughs> It's well. I mean, the other thing is you have to get your you have to you have to do research, and you have to, especially countries and and you know, if you're dealing with a country like China that is such a culturally and it's culturally just unbelievably different compared to here. Something that it just it would be very impossible to to really get a good understanding without going there and spending a few years working with 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 an actual you know Chinese company or Chinese people and and you know. There's a there's something you have to internalize that just it's different. They think differently. They come to different conclusions. They prize. They put value on different things, and that all comes into their calculus. So getting your sources from places that are just propaganda machines for all practical purposes, you have to get your information from people on the ground. So people that actually understand the culture, understand the society understand what drives them compared to us. And I think a lot of the reporting regarding, generally speaking, the trade war and China and all that, the the rise of China in the past 25 years and just kind of all of it when you put it all together, it's very poor and does not actually rely on on actual good sources. I think um, you have companies like Bloomberg and others that set up news operations in, in these other countries. Like I think Bloomberg has a an operation of Hong Kong because of the markets there. They probably have a um, another operation in, in, in actually in China. But they're not getting like the real, it doesn't seem like they're getting a good interpretation of the things on the ground. They just seem to report the facts and figures and you do with it what you will. It, it doesn't get the, the cultural interpretation, I guess you would call it. And, and how you should think about things compared to com- compared to you know somebody that's actually been there and can can have a real legitimate conversation it's ultimately very ironic i think because these are the same people that preach you know multiculturalism and they preach you know 
all of that stuff. But at the same time, they don't, they don't drink their own Kool-Aid. They don't look to see what is different about these people. Why do they think this way? Why are they making these decisions? Why were they recoiled when Trump called um, China untrustworthy? Why did they take advantage of, of Trump when he said he would delay tariffs? Because both of those things would be, you know, in Western society, those two se- separate situations regarding the trade war. When somebody calls you untrustworthy, Westerners go, especially if you're trying to make a deal with them, they, they don't recoil. They say, they, they try and prove themselves that they're trustworthy. In China, that's the equivalent of throwing up the middle finger and saying, I'm never going to work with you. That will f- send them to the hills um, because honesty and, and honor is, is, you know, it's a very important cultural standpoint. But when you, like Trump did, he, he said he would delay the tariffs for the holiday season. That is viewed as a massive sign of weakness where most Westerners would view that as, oh, he's giving us a concession. We'll, we'll come to the table. Well, that does it for this episode of Connecting Dots. Thanks for joining me. I'm Paul Truesdell, and my co-host is also Paul Truesdell, my son. We're both with Fixed Cost Financial. This is the home of Fixed Cost Investing. Now, here's a few items to keep in mind. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can also easily join the podcast by going to dots.fm. That's dots.fm got to admit, that's pretty darn cool. And please check on the subscribe link. Now, Dots is also on most third-party players, such as Overcast, which is our favorite podcast player, or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Castro, Radio Public, Breaker, TuneIn, or CastBox. And when you listen to a third-party player, make sure to hit the like button and subscribe. It's greatly appreciated. Now, you can do us a big favor by helping spread the word by emailing, texting, calling, or just talking to family, friends, neighbors, relatives, and coworkers about, well, connecting dots. And to contact us, go to the website, which is fixedcostfinancial.com, use the blue intercom button, or call 212-433-2525. That's 212-433-2525. With that, for everyone here at Fixed Cost Financial, have a great day, and we'll be back tomorrow with part two of this discussion about China on Connecting Dots.